Hello, Florida Bar members and Florida registered paralegals. This is a quick reminder from the Standing Committee on Mental Health and Wellness of Florida Lawyers that you are approved to use the Florida Lawyers Helpline, a completely free and confidential around-the-clock helpline designed to support you in managing the challenges of both your personal and professional life. By dialing 833-FL1-WELL or 833-351-9355, you can connect with mental health professionals who are ready to assist you. Take advantage of up to five complimentary in-person or telehealth counseling sessions annually. And remember, there's no limit to the number of calls you can make. Reach out today. You're listening to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center, Legal Fuel. Produced by the broadcast professionals of the Florida Bar. Welcome to the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel Podcast, brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. We're so glad you're joining us. This is Carla Eckhart. I'm the Senior Practice Management Advisor at the Florida Bar and one of the hosts of the show, which is being recorded from our studio in Tallahassee, Florida. And I'm Jamie Moore. I'm a practice management advisor at the Florida Bar and co-host of today's podcast. Our goal at the Practice Resource Center is to assist Florida attorneys with running the business side of their law practices. We focus on a different topic each month and carry the theme through our website with related tips, videos, and articles. The client intake process goes far beyond simply having a potential client complete a few forms. It encompasses everything from attracting new clients during the first interaction to ultimately signing engagement letters. For small firms and solo attorneys, this process can be incredibly time-consuming and typically does not generate any billable hours. However, by implementing efficient processes and utilizing the right tools, the client intake process can be streamlined, enabling your practice to run more smoothly while also leaving a positive first impression on clients. Joining us today to discuss the client intake process is Jordan Turk, an attorney and legal technology advisor at Smokeball, one of the Florida Bar's newest member benefits. Jordan Turk is a practicing attorney in Texas and is also the legal technology advisor at Smokeball. Her family law expertise includes appeals, pre- and post-nuptial agreements, as well as complex property division and highly contentious custody cases. In addition, Jordan has given CLEs across the country on topics ranging from client relationships to proper trust account management. Jordan graduated from the University of Texas at Austin with a BA in Classics, History, and Religious Studies. She then went on to attend the University of Arkansas School of Law to earn her JD. After almost four years of practice with a high-asset family law firm in Houston, Jordan discovered the world of legal technology, which ultimately brought her to Smokeball. Jordan has authored and co-authored many articles that you can find in various state bar publications and around the internet. Passionate about giving back to her community, Jordan makes a point of taking pro bono cases wherever possible. Welcome to the show, Jordan. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for being here. We're so excited. I'm so excited to be here. God, you know, family law. I love talking about family law. I love talking about intake, though, especially. It's a lot of, you know, all the drama all the time. And intake is the first opportunity to witness that drama firsthand. (laughs) Absolutely. So let's get into it. All right. So, Jordan, I recently attended your Smokeball CLE webinar. 
Elevate Your Client Intake, 12 Ways to Improve Your Process. Your insights on streamlining the client intake process were invaluable. Could you elaborate on why you consider intake to be the most critical process and how it can contribute to growing a law firm? Right. So to me, intake is kind of the lifeblood of your practice, right? This is how you get clients. This is how you retain clients. And this is ultimately, right, how you get paid. So to me, it was always the biggest deal. But it was definitely not something that they ever addressed or taught you in law school, because intake turns out is a lot more sales focused than it is law focused, right? You can be as good of a lawyer out there as anyone else, but if you don't know how to sell your services to a client, if you don't know how to actively listen to a client, you're not going to sign that client. And so the problem is, unless you cut your teeth at a firm that had a lot of attorneys that you could learn from, or if you had just a very good mentor, it was difficult to figure out how you actually signed clients, what actually went on in an you know, initial client consultation, and ultimately, how do you get clients to sign that fee agreement? So a lot of it is you know, baptism by fire, and you learn a lot as you go on, but you know, it takes a lot of people years to perfect their initial client consultation and their intake process, and I hate that because it's so critical to your firm. So that's why I'm so passionate about it in the first place. Because I was terrible at it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Speaking of baptism by fire, uh, let's let's just do that right here, right now. Uh, so oh. hypothetical. You're a solo practitioner, or maybe you have, uh, you know, yourself and a non-lawyer staff person, or maybe two attorneys, um, and. That's it. You're it. Uh, what is step one? How do you uh, address pre-screening, uh, for example, when you first interact with that potential client? First of all, no matter what, it's conflict checks, right? And you have to do that as early as possible. They should theoretically, hopefully in your firm, be done as soon as the client calls in to set up an appointment, right? So you should already have a conflicts check system in place. So if you have a large amount of attorneys in your office, then what I would say is never put the power of a conflict check in their pocket because they're not the ones doing this every single day and they will inevitably mess it up. That's just what we do because that is not, you know, necessarily in our daily tasks. So be very careful about that. But everybody else in your office from receptionists to admins to paralegals should know how to perform conflict check and conflict checks. And then two, when it comes to clearing conflicts, a lot of attorneys also ask me, hey, what do you actually say if there is is a conflict and you know because they're worried about client confidentiality issues you don't want to say oh hey your wife just retained us so keep it short keep it simple say i'm sorry we're just unable to take your case at this time and a lot of potential new clients will try to say well why why are you saying that how do you not have enough time for me you're a law firm aren't you don't you want this business just keep the same line and just say i'm so sorry we are just really unable to take your case at this time and I, I want to go a little bit more into the conflict checking process because it actually recently came up in sort of an administrator's group conversation and everyone was sort of chiming in on how they perform conflict checks. Um, what are some best practices uh, for conflict checking and, and, and how does that process actually play out? Because some people to my horror, we're like, oh, well, some of us check our emails and some of us do this. And then, you know, it, it seems very uh, sort of <laughs> haphazard, haphazard <laughs> the way they do it. Um, and I know like back in the day, you had sort of this Rolodex kind of uh, contact list that you would go down. Um, but, you know, 
should they be using perhaps technology and, and some kind of client management platform, you know, practice management platform that can do that, that maybe things won't fall through the cracks? Yeah, so a lot of ter- a lot of firms are still very much old school about things, right? So say you don't really utilize technology other than maybe for your billing software, right? So you'll go into their firm and they'll say, oh, yes, well, our conflicts check either. Yes, they check their email, which caused me extreme anxiety, or they just keep everything on an Excel spreadsheet that's on the firm drive, which causes me a high degree of agita. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it just depends because these systems are not fail safe, right? Something happens to your firm drive. If the Excel spreadsheet is just on, you know, the receptionist desktop, that's an issue, too. If you already utilize a practice management system, chances are high, high, high that they already include some form of a conflict check process in there, right? Where they're storing all the data about clients, opposing counsels, you know, uh, county of the litigation, things like that. It's already being stored for you. So if you already utilize a practice management system, absolutely, uh, you know, make sure that you are using the conflict check portion of that. And so you can also do it a de facto way. Some practice management systems will say, oh, we don't really provide for a conflict check process, but you can kind of rig it how you need to and do it that way too. You just can be creative about it. You don't have to pay thousands of dollars just to be able to run a conflict check. You know what I mean? But it certainly shouldn't be checking through your emails or checking on an Excel spreadsheet because I think that's basically, you know, disciplinary action with the bar territory. Absolutely. You're just biding your time for it, you know? Absolutely. And to tie it back to the being, you know, the hypothetical I presented earlier, if you're just one or two people in your firm, that's just incredibly time consuming. Um, And, you know, if the technology out there that is able to perform the conflict check or facilitate the conflict check process um, ultimately pays for itself in this step alone. Um, So I think it's incredibly important for people to take that into account during the pre-screening process. So moving on sort of to step two, what are other tools in the sort of pre-screening or intake process um, that can be automated? Are there scheduling tools, online calendars? What other ways should attorneys be sort of leveraging technology and automation uh, to like book appointments, for example? Right. So a lot of, you know, again, old school way is client calls in, wants to book, you know, a consultation with you. And then so the receptionist, the paralegal obviously puts that on your calendar. They clear the conflicts they do. Uh, they take some initial information and it's set on the calendar, uh, which, you know, there's a lot of steps with that when you look at it. And clients nowadays, you know, we come we're at a very much a digital age and millennials actually now wake, make up more than half of the workforce. And we expect, you know, there's this expectation of, I can set my doctor's appointment up online. Why can't I do that with my attorney? Right. And so I think it's kind of going to there. So there are certain things that you can do. There's calendaring systems. Calendly uh, is a big one. I think Acuity is the other one that you can use to where the client can just kind of book the calendar themselves and see when you're available and you can block out when you're available and not available. So that's really great. A big, big one for me, and actually something that Smokeball is about to release to the public is intake forms. I know, (laughs) exciting, but it really is. It's intake forms because this was always a bit of a bear for us uh, at my old firm because we did not make it automated. So what would end up happening is a client would call in. They would say, yes, I want to come in for a consultation. So, of course, we want to send them this intake paperwork. It would either be emailed to them in a PDF or they would show up 
15, they were supposed to show up uh, 15 minutes early to fill out their forms in the office if they wanted to do it that way. The problem with all of that is, okay, if I send it via PDF, there's certain information that they cannot send me back. So for instance, for family law, I need to know your full social security number. I need to know your full driver's license number. But if I'm just emailing back and forth a PDF, that's sensitive information that I want nowhere near my email, right? And so automatically they can't fill out every single thing that I would need when it came to that. And then they would come into the office, we would have the consultation. And there's a provision that would end up happening in our intake paperwork that would be a flag for the attorneys in our office. And it said, hey, if the client decides to retain you, you need to have them fill out this portion of the intake paperwork, which is the social security number, the driver's license, all the sensitive information that you would need. Now, I'm going to ask you all a question. Uh, if you ever, do you think that any of the attorneys in our office, when the client decided to retain us, do you think that any of them remembered to tell the client to fill out that random box of information? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Every kidding. single time. <laughs> no, no. But, yeah. I mean, it's one of those, just one more step that I, I get why they forget, but absolutely they forget to, to remind the client. Right. Because you're just excited that you signed the client. Exactly. <laughs> So that's the problem. But then it causes a headache for the receptionist who has to go and call the client, track them down, get that information over the phone. So by automating that whole process, one, you can get that information from the client and it's through an encrypted service. So for instance, Smokeball has communicate. So if a client wanted to send me uh, information that would be socials or anything like that, very sensitive information, they could do it via that way. So it doesn't have to go through email and we can keep everything nice and copacetic. Another issue that I find, especially if you are big on having the client come in and fill out the paperwork at that point, which I hate. And for this very reason, it's because they would come in and clients inevitably, their appointment would be for two o'clock. They would show up at 158 and still have to fill out all of their paperwork. And sometimes that takes them 10 or 15 minutes. So you're kind of as the attorney in this weird no man's land where you can't really work on another case and be billing on another case because you're already in your headspace of starting this initial client consultation. And it's the worst thing because I just want to be billing. I have to wait for this client for an extra 15 minutes, which I could have been billing on. I have to wait for them to finish up this paperwork. The paperwork then gets walked over to me so that I can read it for a few minutes before we meet. So all of a sudden, that's 20 minutes of my day wasted. Non-billable time. It's not even, and it can't count toward our consultation time. So it just would make me irate. So by automating that whole process, you tell the client, hey, Yes, you're confirmed. Here's uh, where you are on the schedule. Here's how to get to our office. And then here's all of the intake paperwork that you will need to fill out prior to coming. And it's beautiful. They do it all online. It all gets uploaded into your practice management system. Mwah, mwah, mwah. Beautiful, beautiful. And I don't have to worry about spending 20 minutes of my day doing nothing in this weird PNC or potential new client uh, limbo land, you know. And these particular automated intake forms, how do you deliver them to the client? Do you email a link? Do you embed them on a website? How does that work? So every system is going to be different. Mm -hmm. What Smokeball does is we give you the options. So Typically, if a client wants to come in and fill out something online, they can do that. And then the intake paperwork can be sent to them via email that way. It can also be sent via a secure link that they can click on and download. So it really just depends. Just pick your poison, right. <laughs> you right. know, with that. But there are a lot of ways to do it. Uh, and a lot of it is just what your clients would be most comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Right. A lot of clients do like that email. But if they're sending, again, sensitive information or a lot of clients don't want to and they can't 
due to HIPAA uh, regulations, maybe you don't want them to send sensitive healthcare data over email, right? Because they shouldn't be doing that. So you want them to send it via an encrypted service. And I need to know this information prior to, you know, our initial client consultation. So I'm going to send them that secure link to upload those files. Okay. Well, very good. I um, have a related question, I guess, just as part of the intake. Have you um, ever utilized our, our, the outsourced receptionist services such as Ruby, Abby, or Smith AI, or have you always had dedicated support staff to assist you? So I've always had dedicated support staff. However, I have a lot of colleagues that now use like Ruby receptionist, Lex reception, things like that, where they use these virtual uh, legal receptionists. And it's phenomenal, especially if you're getting a lot of calls per day. And it's, you know, for initial client consultations, things like that. They are wonderful. The key to it all is to give as detailed instructions and scripts as possible. So if you just kind of let them run with it, uh, that might get you. That might not get you the results that you want. But if you put time into it, uh, you're. I think you're going to reap the rewards of that. And also too, they'll make sure they can calendar. It depends on what you what uh, powers you give them, for lack of a better term. But they can. Uh, access your calendar, they can book appointments. And then also, uh, biggest one for me, because I've been burned so many times before, uh, is that they can also collect your consultation payment, which you should be doing this. Yeah, this is a big one for me. (laughs) But you should be doing this regardless. So regardless of if you have a virtual receptionist or, you know, an or a physical receptionist, you should always, always, always be collecting that initial client consultation prior to the consultation taking place. Absolutely. And and again, these outsourced services, because whenever I get calls from members and I tell them, well, there's this practice management software, there's this uh, outsourced or, you know, receptionist service, they're always looking at what it costs them. What they don't realize is that this is value added and these services ultimately pay for themselves because you're able to capture whether it's more time, whether, you know, you're just able to do more um, with your time and therefore you end up billing more. And again, these just, these pay for themselves. So I, I always try and leave the pricing for the end and try and explain all the great things these services do. So, uh, you know, for our listeners, when we're talking about outsourced receptionists and you're thinking, I can't possibly afford that. Yeah, I think, you know, it's worth considering because oftentimes if you look at the numbers, you absolutely can afford it. These services are made for, you know, for solo or small firms. So that, you know, that that's exactly what they're here for. And and you may be able to afford it and, and even, again, just generate more billable hours. I mean, it's a whole thing of... For me, when I'm choosing or when I was choosing, when I was really deep into firm life and I was looking at software, it was a thing about I do not want it unless it gives me more free time or unless it makes me more money. Absolutely. Because otherwise, what am I doing? Right. Absolutely. So post-pandemic, a lot of attorneys, the courts, the entire sort of judicial system and and whatnot was forced onto Zoom, right? And then we all started, whether we liked it or not, we we became more remote. How does the client intake process look like, you know, when you're conducting it through Zoom, that first consultation? What are some things that attorneys uh, should keep in mind when they're interacting with clients over Zoom? You know, that's so difficult because I'm such an in-person gal when it comes <laughs> to clients, because really that's how I view it this way is 
this client does not want to hire you. No one is mm -hmm. ever happy to come into an attorney's office. Mm -hmm. right? They're about to spend the most money that they've ever spent on any one service or any one thing other than maybe their mortgage. And then second, this is also the most tumultuous point of their lives, right? So they are going through something that hopefully they will never have to go through again. And it is horrific. And then compounded on top of that, you, you want to schedule a Zoom, you know, interview with them and consultation with them. So it's hard to get that, uh, you know, rapport and build that rapport with clients. However, I will say that more and more clients are requesting it or potential new clients are requesting it solely because it's easier for them. So they no longer have to take off two hours, you know, to come and have this initial client consultation because they have to worry about parking and driving there and things like that. And then also it offers the attorney more flexibility. So if my office closes at five and this client really can't do it during work hours, well, Hey, I can just offer them a zoom consultation at six and that's okay. I'll do that to sign that client. Absolutely. Uh, so I think it's made it a lot better, but if you're one of those attorneys that likes to get up and walk around the room and it's really more of a you know, I don't want to say a show, but if that's just how your style is, that's harder to translate across Zoom. So it's one of those things to tell your receptionist or whoever is booking these calls, right? Like if the client is requesting Zoom, you can say that's completely fine, but maybe tell your receptionist or your paralegals that your preference is in person so that they can kind of sell that to the client, quote unquote. And then, Absolutely. yeah. And then also too with it, and I know I just mentioned it, but I didn't say maybe how to do it is that especially if you're doing it over zoom, that means a client's not coming into the office and you're not collecting that consultation payment up front right then. Right. So how do I collect this consultation payment? Because here's the deal for me. I'm a family law attorney. If I gave free consultations every day of my life, I would have no room to practice at all. <laughs> <laughs> my entire day would just be free consultations, <laughs> you know, and we already get that enough from all of our cousins and friends and random people on Facebook that want to reach out to you and ask you things that you never wanted to know about their lives. But so what you need to do is uh, hopefully at this point, uh, especially post pandemic, you're utilizing some sort of online payment platform like LawPay, Gravity, Headnotes, something like that. You're already utilizing that. So before the initial co client consultation takes place, when you send the client all the information, hey, here's the Zoom link, here's the date and time, things like that, it should be very clear and bold and underlined that the consultation payment is due prior to the consult taking place. And if it is not received and confirmed prior to that, there will be no initial client consultation. Fair enough. I think that's important. And just another question with that, if they do not pay that consultation fee, do you have like an email that's sent to them? Like our yes. meeting is canceled. Oh, you yes. haven't paid. Okay. So essentially, so say, and also in that email that you send off saying, hey, you need to pay this prior, you include a link to like your law pay account, your gravity account, right? So that they can pay online immediately because otherwise, what are you doing? And so generally, if they do not pay, 99% of the time, they're still going to show up to that Zoom or even in-person consultation expecting this to happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what used to happen in the past is, especially if they were in the office, you know, it's a busy office. Things are going a million miles a minute. Maybe the receptionist forgot to take that payment prior to the consultation. So I end up having this consultation and I leave and then the receptionist tries to collect it after the fact. And all of a sudden that client, like every other client, has gotten some sort of, you know, been struck with a very convenient amnesia. 
about having to pay this console fee. Oh, I didn't know I had to pay it. Oh, I thought I only had to pay it if I retained Jordan. Oh, I didn't know I had to pay it at all, you know, which is a lie. And they all know this, right? But they're all going to try the same kind of shtick. And so instead, what you need to do is just be very blunt about it. And now I have a requirement of if we don't see that money in our account, I do not go. And so what ends up happening, especially over Zoom, is if we do not get it received, the client will try to join the, the potential new client will try to join the Zoom and I'll have the receptionist or even I. It just depends on how busy we all are. Or I will send an email and say, we have not received your payment. We cannot continue with the consult. And I give them one last time to pay it, including that link. But after five minutes now. Fair okay. enough. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in the webinar that I mentioned earlier, you emphasize the importance of avoiding absolutes when speaking with clients. Could you elaborate on this and share how you ensure your clients are discussing their true needs? So every attorney, I think we fall victim to this every once in a while because we get lulled into this weird false sense of security with our clients, right? Because clients only tell you one side of the story and they think that they are being truthful, but every attorney understands that they are not. <laughs> There's two sides to every story and, you know, the truth is kind of falling in between there. And so especially for younger attorneys, it's very easy to fall into that trap of speaking in absolutes, right? Well, the client told me this one story and I said, oh yes, that's absolutely, we can get that confirmed as your separate property. That's not an issue at all from what you've told me. Absolutely, yes, that's your separate property, not subject to division. Cool. But then you get into the case and you find out, oh no, actually there's a commingling. There's a lot of issues here that the client didn't tell you. And what do you know? It's not separate property. And then the client gets very angry and says, well, you told me absolutely that this was my separate property, right? <laughs> so it's just one of those client narratives at the end of the day that is absolutely terrible. So the goal with all of that is to never speak in absolutes. Every attorney should be using their favorite phrase of it depends right? <laughs> as you go through it. But truly, yes. And so what I do on top of that also is about trying to fix what or trying to figure out what my client wants as far as a cost benefit analysis. So I know that you maybe want to fight over this end table, which happened in a case of mine where she really wanted to fight over this end table. That was not a family heirloom, by the way. It was just a random West Elm end table that they didn't make anymore. <laughs> and I told her, I said, you know, between our fee, the mediator's fee to arbitrate this issue, because that was part of the clause, and I was like, and opposing counsel, all this, we're spending $6,000 to arbitrate this issue over an end table. And this is going to make me, you know, pull my hair out. This is so silly. Just go and buy a new end table. And so it's one of those things where it's a constant, you know, cost benefit analysis, but especially when you're looking at intake, you know, a lot of times maybe what the client wants or what they need doesn't have to be a full blown litigious thing, right? So sometimes instead of having to file a $5,000 enforcement action, maybe all you have to do is draft a strongly worded letter, you know, to the opposing party, and they're going to shape up about it. And they're going to, you know, adhere to the to the order. So it really just depends. But the big thing about that is, when you're looking at what the client's goals are, and if they're actually, you know, uh, reasonable, Sometimes all it takes is something very minor in that case, and it doesn't take full-blown filing of a petition and serving a document and things like that. And my big uh, thing with that is if you can save the client money, then that's a guaranteed referral source. So while we're 
talking about offering the client a cost analysis. Um, you have discussed in the webinar that Jamie mentioned earlier the importance of being clear about the actual costs of the case. And clients tend to remember the lowest number. Um, so can you sort of explain how attorneys, while they're doing their intake and initial consultation, how they should approach the finances of the potential matter that they're about to take on. Right. And that's really a lot of clients you have to remember because we've just been in the game too long. You say retainer to a client and they really have no idea what that means. So you can say, hey, your retainer is $5,000. Hey, but this isn't the cost of your case. And then you continue on. Right. And that's normally how these things run when it comes to going over your fee agreements. Clients have no idea what you just said. They just heard, oh, it's going to be a $5,000 retainer. That's how much it should take to run my case. Right. So you have to be very careful when you explain it and be very clear. So generally when I'm going through that provision and I'm talking about and I'm talking about uh, the retainer, I'll say, look, this is not the cost of the case. And here's what I mean by that. From what you've told me, yes, I think we can get this done under $5,000. However, I have no control over who they hire. If opposing counsel is going to be ridiculous and just wanting to run up costs, I have no control over what the judge will do in this case, what the clerks do in this case. There's only so much I can do. So yes, in an ideal scenario, this is the number, but I can tell you right now that this can go up substantially. This can double. It just really depends about all of the extraneous factors in your case. And then I'll kind of go into a couple I'll kind of go into a couple examples with them, too, and just to say, so it could get here and it could be bad. And I just want you to be prepared for that, because also, too, again, clients lie, but they don't mean to. So every single family law case, you know, the client will come in and say, oh, well, the retainer shouldn't be this high because it's going to be uncontested. And every single family law attorney has earned <laughs> by that before. <laughs> so that's the problem there. And so you, so what you do is you tell them and you say, look, if what you've told me is correct and this is a unicorn case and it is uncontested, perfect, then yes, we can get it done for this. However, this probably is going to go up substantially depending on if they hire an attorney, who that attorney is, you know, things like that. So just be very clear about it. Don't just spend a second on that phrase talking about a retainer. You need to actually explain to them what a retainer is. Right. You got to manage expectations from the onset. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And this ties into my next question, which is in the webinar, you mentioned trusting your clients and letting them lead the way. So that that can be tricky, you know, and, but oftentimes you have to just go with, you know, what they're telling you. So can you can you give an example of how you put that into practice? Yeah. So sometimes I I'm very jaded and I know this is going to be crazy. An attorney that's jaded. What? Uh, but <laughs> I don't really like to believe my clients all that much, right? Because you've seen it all at this point. You generally know the human condition, especially if you're an attorney that has to deal with opposing parties and actual people instead of, say, businesses, you know, every day. And so you start getting just very jaded. And so a client will come and tell you and say, hey, I think we can get this done if we go this route. And as the attorney, you say, this is kind of unorthodox. I don't think so. I can tell you what this person is going to do or what this opposing party is going to do. I think that's a terrible idea. But sometimes the client is absolutely correct. And you need to put and you know, you need to give that some validity. So I had a client at one point say, hey, I don't think we need to do a full blown enforcement action on this issue. I think he's actually just going to pay me a lump sum. 
And, you know, we're here in Texas. Texas is a very debtor friendly state. I was like, he's under no obligation to pay this to you and nothing happens to him if he doesn't. And so I'd rather just do X, Y, Z, file this and go about it that way, because I think it's going to save you time and, you know, any type of anxiety. And she said, no, I know him. Like, I know him. I was married to him for, you know, 15 years. You know, he'll do right by this. We just need to send him this letter. And so I drafted it. I sent it and we had a check within three days, you know, nice. so sometimes, yeah, it really does come down to trusting your gut, but at the same time too, trusting your gut also <laughs> very much applies to red flags and being able to decline representation at that point too. So if you're maybe going to be the client's fifth attorney on that case, you know, chances are they're going to cause more headaches than they're worth. You know, that would be the time. Sometimes those would be the cases where I would have to call the te Texas bar ethics hotline <laughs> <That's kind laughs> about specific things. I'm sure Florida gets that uh, in abundance. Yeah. But it's really one of those things where we're so scared. Sometimes we just want to sign the client. We just want to get the money. Maybe it's a very lean month, but the few times, and I'm sure so many attorneys agree with this, but the few times that I have not trusted my gut and I've taken that case, they've been the worst cases of my life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just sleepless nights, completely just wrecked <laughs> mentally, yeah. you know, and emotionally. And here's the deal too. I have never once regretted firing a client. I mean, I, I, I can see oftentimes those cases are also time thieves. They're not necessarily your most lucrative cases. Um, so it, it's important to learn to say no. And to that end, um, this is a part of the intake process that a lot of attorneys have a difficult time with, and it's declining representation. So can you offer our listeners some examples of how to go about saying no and declining uh, to represent a potential client? Oh, yeah. And I'll preface this by saying just because everyone deserves zealous representation doesn't mean that you need to be the one to provide that representation. <laughs> so really just keep that in mind as you go along. And even if you really do need the money, like you said, that is the case where they're going to burn through their retainer within, you know, 30 seconds and you're going to be stuck with that case. And, you know, Texas, when you try to withdraw from a case, you can't uh, charge for it. And so basically, I'm already in the hole in that case because they burned through their retainer. They're not paying me any more money. And now I have to spend time withdrawing from that case that I can't bill against the client file. <laughs> so just keep that in mind as you go in. But as far as actually declining representation, what I generally do is just say, once I've had the initial client consultation, I'm like, oh, this is red flag central. Absolutely not. <laughs> I'll have usually the receptionist contact the client or I'll say, I'll tell the client, hey, please think on this and let me know tomorrow what your thoughts are so that they're not retaining me immediately. And then I'll tell them or have the uh, receptionist instruct them that we're just not uh, equipped to take your case right now, or hey, from what you told me in this initial client consultation, this is going to be a lot more challenging and a lot more time consuming than actually my staff can handle right now. So I don't think I'll be able to take this case. And you don't have to give some lengthy, flowery explanation. You can be succinct. Again, you're not required to take on every case that walks through the door. Exactly. But I think a lot of attorneys were scared, right? Because we don't mm -hmm. want them going to bad mouth. We don't want them going and leaving a Google review, just being like, she's scared to take my case. But then also my tried and true method uh, does have the potential to bite you. So be careful. But, but generally what I'll do is if a client comes in, like, oh, dear God, absolutely not. 
I'll go and I'll quote them an exorbitantly high retainer that they could never pay and never afford. Because, right, uh, family law attorneys are in a unique position where once you finish that consultation, you kind of know what the entire estate looks like. So if you say, hey, client, this is going to be a $20,000 retainer, they're not going to be able to pay that because you know what their estate looks like and how much they make. So that way you kind of save face where the client says, oh, well, thank you very much. And I appreciate this. And I'm sorry that I can't hire you, but this has been great. And thank you for the information. And then you can go go on your merry ways that way. However, this backfired in a terrible way. Uh, one time when I did a consultation with someone that I did not want to take her case. And so I thought, oh, I'll just use this method. And so I quoted her something like a $50,000 retainer, right? Thinking there's no way, no possible way in the world. And then she whipped out a checkbook and wrote me a $50,000 check. And yeah, because turns out her father is some plastics magnate uh, in a foreign country and she could absolutely afford it. And that was the worst case of my life, trying to work with her and trying to do all that. It was absolutely horrific. So I say use that method, but with very with a lot of caution, I will say. Right. right. And to be fair, you mentioned that it was an exorbitant retainer, but oftentimes it's not really because these are the clients that will invariably use all that up if they are able to pay it. I mean, so it's not really exorbitant. You're just sort of protecting yourself from the onset as opposed to having to deal with the financial aspect as you go. Right. So I, I wouldn't say necessarily it's a bad method, but if our listeners follow the other advice you've given throughout uh, today's podcast, um, you know, to set expectations, to make sure that you streamline the the pre-screening process so you can come to those determinations early on as opposed to dragging the client through this long-winded uh, intake process. I, I think, you know, it won't be that big of a heartbreak for you or the client if you just say no. And I wish I would have known that earlier. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I think if you if you lead the client on and they, you know, you drag the whole intake uh, longer than it ought to be, then invariably they're going to be surprised when you hit them with that uh, high retainer fee. And, you know, it, it's you're they're more likely to leave bad reviews and whatnot. So, you know, if you make it quick then it shouldn't be a problem. They either make the informed decision to pay or not pay as opposed to thinking, oh, well, after all this, weeks have gone by and now you're asking me to pay this exorbitant amount. I mean, so again, the, the whole point of today's podcast is to streamline the intake. If you manage to do that, then whatever that retainer amount may be, will be an easy decision for the client to make. Right. And really, it's about two striking while the iron's hot with the clients that you want, right? <laughs> because your goal should be by the end of that initial client consultation, I want them to sign their fee agreement and I want them to pay their retainer before they even walk out of my office. Right. And then, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, we talked about letting the clients lead the way and, you know, sort of trusting the client. And I think that kind of goes hand in hand with, you know, making sure that the client is aware that they ought to actively participate in their representation from the get-go and that they have some kind of, uh, you know, stake. Obviously, I know logically they they have a stake in, in the matter, but, you know, that they feel like they're a part of the process. And I think that's important. On the attorney's end, why, or why is it important to sort of provide them with a roadmap? And, and how do you provide them with a roadmap so that you can once again, manage expectations from the get-go. 
So my biggest pet peeve and what I tell clients all the time is you should never have to go to Google to figure out what is happening in your case. Mm-hmm. So from the, from the absolute get-go, from the jump, from our initial client consultation, you should know, and I should have given you a roadmap about where this is going. You know, we file the petition, we get this served on the opposing party. We go to get a TRO. We have mediation. We have temporary orders. We have mediation again. We have a final trial. You know what I mean? Like they should know exactly what this looks like because my problem is I don't want that client emailing me every other day and asking where they are in this. And then some attorneys will charge the client for that. So uh, while we're talking about sort of setting expectations from the get-go, providing the client with a roadmap, you know, and this is a plug for Smokeball and our other practice management partners, um, but it's why software is so useful because you can track your time as you go. If you have a portal, oftentimes the client has access, you know, real-time access to what's happening in their case. They can see their case calendars. They can, you know, see what is happening. And if you don't have that, then make it a point to, you know, on a weekly basis or on a, you know, every two weeks, whatever you decide with a client to provide them with that information and make sure that they are updated. Also, if you send bills more frequently, that also updates the client because they can see on the bill exactly what you're working on and how often you're working on their case. So, you know, waiting two months to bill a client three months or, you know, God forbid, six months, a year, uh, that that is problematic because you're you're failing at that communication portion of, you know, in this, in our case, the Florida bar rules, you you are required to communicate with your client um, and that and, and sending uh, regular billings is part of that communication and, and making sure that the client is aware of what it is that you're working on for them. So, again, it goes back to active participation, setting expectations and doing all of all of that from the get go. So you don't start thinking about these things you know, halfway through the case after you've retained the client, you keep that top of mind from the moment that person walks into your office. And it doesn't have to be a heavy lift at all for you or your office. You know, when you talk about client communication, even if nothing is happening in that case, so say we just served discovery, we're waiting on getting responses, we're in a lull, right? There's nothing happening. It's just status quo for right now. Even though nothing maybe would be happening for a month or two, you still need to be contacting the client, which if you have a practice management system, that's super easy because it tracks it. It tracks who last, you know, who last touched base with the client. Very easy to see. But at a minimum, you know, at least once a month, twice a month, you need to be reaching out to that client, even if nothing is happening on that case. Right. It's just, hey, client, checking in. Nothing you have to do. We're waiting for discovery responses. Let us know if you have any questions. And that's it. That's really all you have to do. But you have to check in. That's one of the number one complaints uh, from clients. Yeah. It's attorney communication. My attorney hasn't called me back. I can't get a hold of my attorney. It happens all the time. Yeah, we, we get those calls a lot. We we ultimately have to transfer them to the attorney consumer assistance program here at the bar. But uh, invariably, we get those calls a lot with clients calling us saying, hey, uh, you know, how much is an attorney supposed to charge or how often should an attorney be uh, communicating with me? I haven't been able to reach my attorney for a month, for two months, um, you know, and, right. and imagine, imagine you're that client that just hired right. that attorney. Right, 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 right. So it's a nightmare process all along. And, you know, the last thing our listeners want is to get a call from the Florida bar saying your client just called. Funny thing. Um, 
they're saying you haven't contacted them for over a month or for over two months or that you're unreachable. I mean, that is a complaint waiting to happen. Absolutely. So let's talk about fee agreements. This is always a fun one. Um, how do you handle fee agreements? And, and you know, are, do you have standardized forms? Is it on a sort of case-by-case case matter? Or is it portion of it sort of standardized and then you provide details based on the exact services you're providing, fees? How do you go about that credit card information on there? Everything fee agreements. Oh, my favorite. Uh, <laughs> but... The goal for me when I go to consultations is to make things as slick as possible. So number one thing would be to have the fee agreement already filled out. So if I know that this person is coming in for a divorce matter, that's already going to be pre-filled out for them. It's going to have their name, their address, all that jazz. And the only thing that will need to be filled in by me at that point is the amount of the retainer because everything else should be standardized because you already know what the, that client is coming in for. They're not coming in for a will, they're coming in for a divorce. So it's very easy to make sure that you have that uniform fee agreement for your divorces or your family law matters. So that's my big thing is keep it filled out because the problem is say they come in and they're doing this initial client consultation, they want to retain you, they're excited, you say, okay, wonderful. If I don't have it already filled out, what I then had to do historically was step out of the conference room, talk to whatever paralegal or if the receptionist was near, talk to them, have them go and fill out that information on the fee agreement for me and say, hey, it's going to be a $5,000 retainer too. And they would fill all that in and I would just be standing there waiting for them to fill that in. And then they would send it to me or print it out. I would then take it into back into the boardroom, have the client sign it. But you create the sense of well, for one, you don't have a sense of urgency about it because you've left this poor client who just poured their heart out to you in this conference room for five to 10 minutes while you get this thing printed out, which then leaves them room to doubt you, right? right? Because they're about to spend the most money that they've ever paid to their lives on anything, right? And so they're already nervous about that. And suddenly you've left them alone in this cold room for 10 minutes while you go and print out this fee agreement. So it's just kind of bush league to me at this point. So your fee agreement should already be done, filled out. The only thing you need to add is the actual uh, retainer agreement. And then as far as what you need to add to it, and like what I would absolutely rely upon would be your evergreen clause. Not many attorneys utilize that and they absolutely should. And what that is, is essentially you're always going to be working against money and trust. So it's a provision that you put into your fee agreement underneath your retainer that says your retainer is not the cost of your case, da da da, here's your retainer amount. And then your evergreen provision is in the event that you dip below a certain percentage of your retainer. So let's say 40%, you agree to replenish that retainer up to the original retainer amount. So it's magic for attorneys that utilize it and stay on top of it because you're never having to chase after money, you know, after the fact via invoice, you're just always working against money and trust. So definitely think about including that. I also include what's called a third-party payor addendum. A lot of times in family law, we get mom and dad wanting to pay for their child's uh, you know, SAPs or, or divorce fees, which is totally fine. I will take money in any way, shape, or form that I can get it. Uh, but I do have them execute what's called a third-party payor addendum. And it's something that mom and dad would sign acknowledging what they're doing. Because in some states, too, the money that they pay say there's money left over or say mom and dad say, you know what, we don't want to pay for son's fees anymore. Please refund us the rest of our retainer. 
Some states say that retainer that they did, that they used to pay for their kids' fees is a gift to that child. So mom and dad can't get that money back, right? Other states say, oh, no, 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 they were the original payors, they get that back. So one of those is good for you, and one of those is very bad for you. <laughs> so you uh, really utilize that third-party payor addendum, which will explicitly say that this money is now considered the money of the child, things like that. So definitely think about utilizing that. A credit card authorization form should be yes. everyone's best friend. <laughs> and that's a really something you'll add on to the end of your fee agreement. And it's something that the client will fill out with all of their credit card information. And it says, we can charge your, we can charge your card for X, Y, Z, have them fill it out so that you always have it on file. It's amazing, especially if you take payment plans. It's absolutely critical because what it you, well, what am I trying to say? Uh, <laughs> it's critical because it, it protects you from chargebacks from the banks. So for instance, if a client wants to go after the fact and say, I never agreed to pay Jordan $500 a month, this is a lie. I never agreed to any of it. Well, I can take that credit card authorization form, show it to the banks and say, oh no, 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 this client signed for that. This is an agreement. This is my money. And so chances are highly, highly likely at that point that the bank is going to side in your favor. So it's really just a CYA against chargebacks to have that form. Right. Absolutely. And for our listeners, I just want to point out um, the definitions in Florida uh, under Rule 4-1.5 of what a retainer is versus an advance fee. Uh, Traditionally, when attorneys use the word retainer, they oftentimes are talking about funds that they will bill against, so funds that will be held in trust. However, in Florida, under 4-1.5, you're going to find that a retainer is defined as a sum of money paid to a lawyer to guarantee the lawyer's future availability. It is not payment for past legal services, and it is not payment for future legal services. So if you're going to be billing against a particular amount, which uh, you're going to be holding in trust, you want to make sure that you refer to that as an advance fee, because that is what 4-1.5 says. Um, And and you want to be clear with that in your uh, fee agreement. So if you have any questions about that, uh, call Legal Fuel. Go on LegalFuel.com. We have all of that. And if all else fails, or if you want to have a more lengthy discussion on that, you want to definitely contact our ethics hotline, 800-235-8619. They would love to talk to you about the difference between a retainer and an advance fee and, you know, get into the weeds with you. But it's definitely something um, that our listeners need to know. We get that question all the time. And we are, you know, whenever they're putting together their fee agreements, this is always like a hot point, you know, they want to use the word retainer and we're like, well, you know, you should be using an adva- the word advance fee or the term advance fee if you're going to be billing against it. And in Florida, again, if you are uh, requesting a retainer uh, as defined by 4-1.5, those funds go into operating. They do not go into trust. Whereas an advance fee, again, which you're billing against, uh, is something that you would put into trust because it it is not earned until you actually render those legal services or until you incur any particular cost in the matter. So just something for our listeners to be mindful of because it is a frequently asked question that legal fuel. Um, But again, fee agreements. 
have them pre-filled, ready to go. Yeah, just do it. And also, too, just as a shameless plug for Ethics Hotline, I probably used our Ethics Hotline every other week <laughs> when Absolutely. I was heavy into my practice. And it was it's an amazing resource that I think not enough attorneys utilize. So shameless yeah, plug for and, that. And for, for our listeners, again, I, I know I've said this probably a million times in previous episodes, but uh, we often get callers who don't want to be transferred to the Ethics Hotline because they don't want to get in trouble. Um, well, the Ethics Hotline, much like Legal Fuel, is here to help. And really what the Ethics Hotline is here to do is offer you guidance and an interpretation of the rules or opinions about your own intended future conduct. So if you've already done something wrong, um, you need to self-report it, contact the Attorney Consumer Assistance Program here at the bar. But the Ethics Hotline is here to help to make sure that you are actually in compliance with the rules before you decide on taking a particular course of action. So again, I'm going to plug it in. 800-235-8619. That's the Florida Bar Ethics Hotline. Call it. Love it. It's a beautiful thing. But getting back to <laughs> fee agreements. Yes. <laughs> well, another thing too for fee agreements that I always say is absolutely limit the scope of them. You know, if a client comes in, wants to hire me for a SAPS or a divorce matter, that's what I'm going to put into that fee agreement. If sometime down the road during their case, they also need an enforcement action, guess what? That's a completely separate fee agreement. That's a completely separate retainer payment for me. So be very careful with that because a lot of clients will try to kind of loop that in because, hey, this is all happening at the same time and it's stemming from the same matter, but they're two completely different actions. So right. do not fall prey to that. Also, the court wants these separated because say mm -hmm. you're asking for fees and things like that. You don't want to commingle those funds. Absolutely. Good, good information here. So for attorneys still using a paper-based system, could you explain the benefits of using client relationship management or CRM software for better efficiency? Yeah. So again, I don't use something unless it gives me more free time back in my day or it makes me money, right? So in theory, your practice management system, your client relationship manager should be doing both for you. So if you're just using paper and that's all you're utilizing, for one, we've already talked about that's problematic for your conflict checks. <laughs> Even if you're just using something rudimentary like an Excel spreadsheet, you need to really be cloud-based with that too. So that if for some reason we have another pandemic or if people want to work from home, they're still able to access it and it doesn't risk your bar card. So one of those things. Uh, but then also to client communication is key. And especially if you have four different staff members touching a case, right? Maybe a paralegal is emailing, emailing the client. The attorney is too. You know, maybe the legal assistant is trying to get some discovery and also contacting the client. It's hard when you have a docket of 50 cases, which sometimes I did, and I'm trying to figure out what's happening on one particular one. And that just means I'm spending hours going through my emails trying to figure out where we are in that case. Now, if you use a relationship manager, you know, and there's a lot of them out there, <laughs> you know, do your homework, do your research. But for instance, with Smokeball, there's a communicate feature. So I can go and I can, even if I wasn't copied on something, I can go and I can see when that client was last communicated with, who did it and what they were talking about. So I never have to worry about where we are, you know, with this particular case. And then with intake too, especially like I want to be able to send this paperwork to clients. I want them to be able to fill it out themselves so that they don't come into my office and do it and waste my time. So that's another thing to look for. But all of these things should be freeing up 
administrative tasks for you so that you don't have to worry about it ever again. The fee agreement again should be automated. So that client has already come in and signed up to do a consultation with you. Well, guess what? That information should already be saved in your system so that when you go to pull up a fee agreement, all of that information is already filled out. So the receptionist doesn't have to go into the firm drive to find the handwritten notes that the client has made, you know, that says, here's my address. And they're not having to hunt around for that, fill it in themselves, misspell the client's name, print it out, give it to you. And then you present it to the client with this, you know, horrendous misspelling of their name. And it just makes you look terrible. And I say this from personal experience. (laughs) So it should be about you know, automation. And when you talk about it, it's very hot button topic, but the goal is not only to give you more time back in your day, but it's to eliminate those repetitive tasks that also are super prone to human error, right? So if a receptionist or a paralegal, or even you, you know, you're rushing, trying to get this fee agreement filled out and you just, you know, you're not paying attention to how the client's name is spelled. You know, you can't really read their handwriting on the intake paperwork, things like that. Well, that's an issue because it doesn't make you look good when this is your first meeting with the client. And this is what sets the tone for your case. You want it to look slick. You want to exceed client expectations. And again, most clients now expect things to be electronic, expect things to be cloud-based, right? So they're not really looking for that attorney who's in their office, just covered in paper, right? They're not looking for that anymore. They're looking for something they can trust, which usually means slick, streamlined, and cloud-based. So you touched upon, uh, you know, a, a few of Smokeball's offerings, but if any of our listeners uh, are interested uh, in today's particular topic and how Smokeball sort of ties into all of it, what does Smokeball, Smokeball offer when it comes to client intake? What should our listeners expect from Smokeball when it comes to this particular topic? Yep. So we're in beta testing right now, but it's coming out, I believe, to the general public in July. So it's coming out very, very soon. And you can sign up to be part of the beta too. But essentially, we have our own in-house intake software. It is included with your Smokeball software. When you're shopping around for practice management systems, and especially if you're looking to add intake, be very careful because a lot of these places will tell you, oh yes, we have it, but it's actually an additional fee. Same with what we do for the document library that we have. We offer you know 20,000 forms over a document library, so you never have to reinvent the wheel. You can just go access these forms. They're state-specific, jurisdictional-specific, court-specific, because every court in Texas. It's a special snowflake for what they want. Uh, But so we have it all, but you have the problem is other software companies will tell you, yes, we offer it, but it's an additional fee or it's an additional integration. So with Smokeball though, all of this is included. So you pay for the service. Guess what? You get intake, you get the, you know, you get time tracking, you get all of these document library, you know, features, things like that, you get it all. So it's going to be amazing. But essentially, uh, our intake software will give you options so we can give you links to put on your website so that you can get intake forms on your websites, or even uh, initial client consultation forms. So if somebody just wants to reach out to you, and it becomes a lead or a potential new client, we do that. And then also, if a client just calls into the office and wants to be able to schedule an appointment, we can start that intake paperwork then. So it's just a lot. And it's all... uh, Uh, area of law specific because what a, you know, a state's attorney needs is going to be completely different from what I, a family attorney needs. So my intake paperwork is also going to be completely different and we will have all of that for you. So there's no need for you to go and reinvent the wheel or for you to have to upload, you know, a million documents. We will have it all for you and it's all area of law specific. 
Wonderful. Well, there you have it, folks. Practical tips on how to streamline your client intake workflows. Uh, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. Thank you so much, Jordan Turk, for joining us today. Well, thank you all so much for having me. I appreciate it. Jordan, if our listeners have questions, where can they find you or your published articles and CLEs? Yep. Find me on LinkedIn. It's just Jordan Turk, but also feel free to email me. I love email. Uh, Jordan.Turk at smokeball.com. Wonderful. And we're going to be linking uh, the Smokeball Florida Bar Member Benefits link uh, in the podcast description, as well as other resources we mentioned here today. Um, so take a look at that, not while you're driving. <laughs> um, if you like what you've heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. Join us next time for another episode of the Florida Bar's Legal Field Podcast, brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. I'm Carla Eckhart. And I'm Jamie Moore. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalFuel.com. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to the Florida Bars podcast via iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and RSS. Find the Florida Bars Practice Resource Center Legal Fuel on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by the Florida Bar. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.